Good evening and welcome back to Editing Aloud. Thanks for joining us. Um, I have with me as always a panel of uh, some of the group's best journalists. And with us this evening is John Green, Chief Commercial Officer at 91 Asset Management, which uh, used to be Investec Asset Management, but I've been warned not to call it that anymore, um, to talk about the 10 billion rand recovery fund, which 91 and Ethos have this week launched. John, tell us a bit more about the fund and what its objectives are. Thank you. Good evening, Hilary. Great to great to be on your show. So, I, I think as as important participants in the long term savings ecosystem, uh, since uh, the the sort of the onset of COVID, one of the things we've been asking ourselves is how does the the long term savings pool play a role in ensuring that um, economic capacity, productive capacity, GDP potential is retained uh, through the long term. Uh, we know that uh, you know, GDP growth has been challenged for a whole lot of reasons in the past, um, but we, we've been really thinking about how we ensure that the, the COVID effect is minimized and what role um, long-term savings capital can play. And, and really, I think the idea behind this fund is to say how can long-term savings capital be deployed to achieve the dual objective of giving its stakeholders, pension fund members, individuals, a decent return, but also playing a role in ensuring that the companies that need it find the financial solutions when they need it um, for, for uh, allowing them to, uh, to, to be able to come through this COVID situation, uh, the, come through on the other side with uh, equal strength. John, is this in any way a response to the sort of pressure that we've seen from uh, the ANC and others for prescribed assets, for savings to be sort of deployed into developmental uh, I, I don't think it's a response. It can, it can very clearly be, be interpreted as that. Um, it's not specifically driven by the concern around uh, that type of policy thinking. We, we believe that, that savings capital, as with public sector capital and banking capital, needs to think about the role it can play. And, and so that's something we've been doing, notwithstanding the policy, uh, the policy debate here. And we think that obviously if we do this well, then our ability to be part of that discussion, part of the policy discussion in terms of how, how and if it's deployed, uh, that it becomes deployed in an effective way, uh, we, we just, we just uh, you know, create the situation where we can become part of that discussion. So uh, it's not driven by it, but obviously it has an effect uh, on, on that conversation. Rob Rose? Yeah, uh, John, hi. I mean, I spoke to Henrik about it, and I find it fascinating because it's not a traditional, it's not a bailout fund. It's not a, it's not a private equity fund. It's, it's sort of an impact fund. It doesn't really fit into any particular easy-to-understand box. Yeah. Um, I mean, how does it? How will you measure success on this? I mean, you'll. It wouldn't be through sheer just pure returns because you could get that by investing in companies that wouldn't be in trouble. Yeah, no, absolutely, Rob. I think I think two things to to say to that. I think the first point is that if you're genuinely be wanting to provide flexible financial solutions to good companies who have had a significant impact on their operations, on their finances, on their balance sheets as a consequence of COVID. You need to be as flexible as possible in how you're able to craft that, that solution and that package. 
and and as a as a consequence, we've said this is not a you know this is not a fund that fits into a particular box. We want to have the flexibility to be able to invest across the spectrum, uh, you know, from debt to equity, from public to private, uh, in order to be able to be, to be really responsive in the right way um, to 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 the specific situation uh, that we face in terms of the companies that uh, that may need uh, this kind of financing support. Um, that does create a difficulty because uh, asset owners, pension funds, insurance companies typically think about their asset allocation in specific uh, buckets, uh, and so this is something different to that. Even you know, even in the private and public space, they separate, and then even in the debt and equity space, uh, they separate. I think we've seen the reaction, and, and, and we've spoken to a number of, uh, of potential investors. Clearly, this is something we're, we're, we're engaging uh, with the asset owner community extensively on. I think the reaction at first instance is, yes, it's difficult to put in a bucket. But then, um, you know, off the basis of understanding what we're trying to do, there's deep recognition that, uh, that this is something they need to think about differently. So I don't think that in the end that will, that will present, um, you know, an un- a crossable hurdle. In terms of in terms of what are we trying to do, we've we've said it's the it's the unique opportunity to combine uh, impact and return. We want to deliver a decent return to the stakeholders, and we think a decent return is in the region of of, of cash plus four, cash plus five. Uh, but we want to find those companies who are facing a uniquely challenging situations, which if we were unable to provide a financial solution to, would lose their productive capacity in the long run. And so the measure of impact is really about retaining that capacity, retaining the capacity to generate jobs into the future, uh, to, to some extent retaining jobs now, and, uh, and, and for those companies to survive the situation that we're facing. You know, um, if you think about it, you know, when, when the COVID situation started, you know, the first predictions of, of, of 2020 GDP growth was minus 6%. It radically, it very quickly went from minus 6% to minus 10%. And now there's some argument around whether it'll be minus 10 or minus 12. Um, now, just think about that. I mean, that's a minus 4% GDP move in a couple of days. And, and, and if we had you know, historically been speaking about a, a 4% reduction in GDP, we would all be turning circles uh, uh, in, in you know in in our seats, thinking about what the impact would be on the economy, and that's the fundamental point that we're concerned about here: is that we we've never seen a 10 to 12 percent reduction in GDP. We've never seen the impact of that on the real economy. We've never seen the impact of that on companies and their balance sheet and their financing. Um, and and we want to be ready, and and we think that 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 impact is going to start coming now. You know, it's not in the first month. It's not in the second month. It's in the third month, fourth month, fifth month. The companies start feeling that really aggressively, and and we want to be able to 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 be to be engaging ahead of the time, uh, such that these companies are not cutting their 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 capacity in a way that is permanently uh, a problem, and and so that's where we say there's this this combination between between impact and return. Whenever you're accessing um, the pension fund savings pool, you need to think about the members as well. And you need to think about the ability to give them some kind of return. And we think here, this is a really good combination. Lucanio? 
Well, I was also quite interested in terms of you know, the size of companies. I think you, you're looking for companies with a, with a revenue above 300 million, and a lot of a lot of the funds before they've all been below that. But obviously, but you're excluding the big big companies that can sort of raise funds within in the market on their own. With the your research show there was this missing middle middle there that that was, that was sort of not getting any kind of assistance. Absolutely, I think we really were missing middle, um, and we really worried about sort of the rapid deterioration of uh, some of the financial positions of those companies as this COVID situation continues and as the management and, um, and operators in those companies begin to get a real sense of how much and how long it's going to take uh, to, to be able to chart a course through to the other side uh, of, of COVID, you know, the new reality, if, if you like. And, and we think that sweet spot is really in, in, in the small and, and, and medium, small and mid-cap space, above 300 million. Above, in, John, in, above, can I tell I mean, above 300 million will sound a lot to a lot of people. I know 300 million is the ceiling for the, the loan guarantee scheme that, that, that mm. the government has backed the banks to, to, to extend. Um, above 300 million to a lot of people will sound quite a lot. Is that what sort of typically which is where does that fit into the economy and and how big is that market how how many so, so are in that kind Hillary, of that, scale that's a good question uh, rob will probably know the answer better better than me but i mean 300 million turnover businesses you're looking right at the bottom end of uh you know of of the main board i think um yeah so so this is this, this is not, and, and obviously it's dependent on margins and, and, and profitability, but if, 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 if you make a reasonable assessment around that, that's, you know, a, 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 a listed business that's, that's, you know, not in the, in the high end of, uh, of, of, of the number of stocks uh, in, 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 in the all share is going, to, is going to qualify. So I think the first point to make. I think the second point is to say that, you know, the large caps, the, the, the top 40, maybe the top 60, I mean, those even more, the top 70, those, those businesses um, have the capacity to develop their own solutions. They have the capacity to get advisors. They have the capacity to react quickly. They have the capacity to, to tap into the banking systems. You know, we've all, they've, they have the capacity to, to tap into the capital markets. You know, we've already seen 19 new debt issuances since the uh, since the middle of March, which shows you that those businesses are doing that. But but those businesses per se have to already have access to um, you know to the corporate debt market. So we think that's the sweet spot: 300 million uh, uh, in the small and mid cap space, not not in the large cap space. No, but it also but we're not sort of issue, defining a hard cutoff uh, in terms no. of size. But it's, it's also, I suppose, addresses. I was going to ask you, how does this compare? Very quickly, John, because we're running up to the break now. How does it compare to some of the other initiatives that have been launched by the private sector, the Oppenheimer Fund, the Rupert Fund, and so on? Um, this yes. sounds like it's in a in a a larger company space. Yeah, I, th I think the difference, Hilary, here is that is that this is this is very clearly a commercial uh, uh, intent. In other words, we're looking to generate return. We're looking to provide sensible financing solutions to companies. Some of the other funds have really been focused on a disbursement to a particular need. Solidarity Fund, for example, very clearly focused on dispersing um, you know, medical equipment and ensuring that the health system uh, is, properly, uh, is properly ready to deal with uh, 
uh, the, the the pandemic. So so I think in that sense we the, this is different to to those. And then within the commercial space, I think we've seen we've seen sort of differentiation by asset class and and typically by size. There there are one or two funds out there that are looking to the small micro end. So the, the, the we know that may, many of the small micro businesses are suffering most. Uh, in, in, in the COVID scenario. And if there's some that are looking specifically to a type of asset class, debt uh, typically is, has been the one. So we, we've, John, we've, we've kind of come in the middle of all of that. John, I'm going to stop you there, but thank you very much for joining us and good luck with the fund. I wanted to turn now to our economy and Rob Rose, the financial mail cover story this week on government's... Uh, inability, as it were, to get the kind of relief that it's promised out to the populace. Uh, tell us a bit about your cover story and what you have looked at. Well, we went and interviewed a couple of the people who are essentially stepping in where government has failed to feed groups and feed people who should be getting government aid but aren't. Um, and then explored the wider issue of, of, you know, government has made these notional promises to to society, but because of various issues, including red tape, hasn't been able to deliver. Um, and I mean, to some extent, that's partly why the private sector has come in so strongly. I think the Solidarity Fund, or the 91 Fund we talked about, I mean, I think, it's, I think the private sector and I think individuals realized that the government had capacity issues uh, long before this. And just because COVID arrived, you know, they can make all these promises, but it doesn't deal with the capacity issues necessarily. Um, and I think it's exposed a lot of departments, social welfare, for example. You know, you could you could get by beforehand um, by being late for a couple of weeks with your payments, or you know, avoid paying your government suppliers by two weeks. But you can't you can't do that now. And I think it's I think you know the stakes that John talked about. You know, at minus 10% and figures go up to minus 17% GDP um, this year. I mean, that's the stakes are really high, and you can't afford the kind of level of bureaucracy and government ineptitude that we have seen. Warren, do you get the feeling that, in a sense, the private sector is doing more in South Africa than it has done elsewhere to combat the crisis? Yes, uh, Hilary, I think so. I mean, if you look at the contributions, just the Oppenheimer and the Rupert and the Monsepis led, um, I don't think there's been donations like that, even in the US, on the level uh, that we've seen here. Uh, and obviously everyone understands the huge inequality here. So, you, you know, uh, when these people step up and do it, you know, it's almost expected of them. Um, but what really struck me was when I, uh, we did a bit of work on the feeding schemes. And uh, one of the stories we covered was, was Dowstein's commitment to feed the whole of Diepslut, uh, which is, uh, which is an, a town just to the northwest of Johannesburg. Uh, and um, just to put it into context for you, so he's providing 200 million rand um, in only providing food to uh, the communities of Dipslut and, and those around Stain City. And the uh, budget for uh, the department, um, uh, the, the social development department uh, for the food schemes during COVID in April was 44 million rand. So, in effect, we saw uh, the complete uh, citizens were almost completely reliant on non-profit organizations uh, and the private sector to step in and provide the feeding schemes that are necessary to, to prevent, um, you know, widespread starvation. 
Um, I think it's going to change a little bit. I think the government's increased its funding to that. But, I mean, just think about that for a second. There, there, was, there are government feeding schemes, um, but in terms of the increase of the, uh, the, the hunger that has been brought about by the lockdown, it was almost entirely uh, up to the private sector to provide the gap uh, that we've seen. And so, Warren, I mean, it's I mean, not just the... the, the it's not, it's not just a funding issue. I mean, it's been a, a capacity issue. And look, can you, um, you know, I mean, it's not just the, um, it's, it's the, the social grants, it's the food parcels, it's the unemployment insurance fund, which only last week started processing applications for May. I mean, look, can you, you wrote in your column in Business Day this week about the ANC's um, economic document, which I think they was released, was leaked last week. Uh, which sort of argues that the state has shown itself uh, to be the leading agent in the, uh, in the crisis. Uh, you didn't seem to think it had done anything of the sort. Just, I mean, what, what has the state shown us in the crisis? No, I mean, I think like... Speaks to that. I mean, I think the ANC, they've got the debate the wrong way around. Now they're talking about things that the state can intervene in, in like whether it's forming a bank or forming a pharmaceutical company. But the, really the issue we need to be debating first is, is the capacity of the state, the, the, the sort of lack of capacity. I mean, it was there before COVID, and then COVID is, like Rob was saying, it's just merely just exposed it. Like when, when you actually need to deliver food, money at a, at a short space of time, and the state just isn't able to do it. And then it's also instead of de debating then how do we actually build a stronger state or how do we like no, what they do is capacitate the state. Instead, we're talking about how to even load even more, like, like you know, like, like work on it. Like, you know, that now, now this, this same state is supposed to form a new bank and do all these other things. I, I mean, I think that this, 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 I think that this is what's been exposed. That the debate is actually been the other way around. And I think, and also it becomes a bit too simplistic to say state is business private. I think other states have shown that. that I mean, no, 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 not even America can describe as a purely private, you know. <laughs> and and you, when, when you look at countries in Asia, that, or even like North Scandinavian countries that people talk about as, 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 as models, none, none of those are purely private or purely state. The question here is the weakness of the state. You know? Rob, Rob does think, the crisis sort of, do, does the crisis uh, take us forward at all? Or uh, in the sort of state-guided development that the, the ANC wants to see? Do you think what's in fact happened in the crisis, Rob Rose, is... Is any may break any sort of logjam? I mean, the, the ANC talked about how this was a good time for introspection, which I think is right. But then, like Lacanio says, they misdiagnose the the the, the answer. Um, you know, they see themselves as taking a greater role in the state, when actually they should be taking a lesser role in the state. Um, so, I, I mean, I think this was a moment for them, and I think that they've that they've messed it up. What is potentially positive is the discussion about infrastructure. If you can find a way to harness funding and boost infrastructure as a way to create a kind of a, you know, a FDR type new deal, um, that is one potential solution that might not be too bad, depending on how it's done. Warren, I want to talk for a moment about markets. Um, we've seen the RAND strengthening, we've seen markets in the US starting to go crazy at this time when certainly in this country, business confidence is at all-time lows. I mean, what, what accounts for this complete sort of disconnect? I think just the, the fundamental uh, power in the market at the moment, uh, Hillary, we've got to remember is the search for yield. And uh, 
you've basically got, I mean, I can't remember what the, the number is. Between the, the developed markets, there are trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars moving from uh, the printing of money, QE as we call it, uh, into the markets to try and resuscitate and revive these economies. And even South Africa with all its problems, um, you know, there is a, just to, to give you an indication, even the Bank of England are thinking about, although it's very unlikely, employing negative interest rates in England to get the money moving out of bank accounts and into real, real economic activity as a way of uh, reviving the economy. I think it's already taking place in other countries in Europe. Um, and, and we all know that the US uh, interest rates are very low. So the fundamental theme, I think, in markets is that as you see economies begin to reopen, you've got massive amounts of pools of capital now looking for yield. And uh, even for a country like South Africa, with all our problems around our budget and our economic growth, if you can, uh, if you're sitting in New York and you can get a yield uh, hedged out um, from Forex risk at, at 4% per annum, uh, that is a very attractive proposition, and I think that is a lot of the power that's going to be driving markets for many, uh, many months going forward. A stronger rand, Lucanio, is that good for us? Not that we I wanted to see it at 18, 19 to the dollar, but... No, well, I suppose, I suppose the key thing we should always remember, Hillary, we, we're still talking about a rent. I think that's down something like 18% since like, the start of the year. I mean, I think we're just below 17 now. And I think, I think on the last day of January of December, last year, we were like on 1399. So we've had quite a big depreciation to start with. So, so, so it's all relative, right? And I mean, now our bond yields are back to basically where they were before the Moody's. I think we're just below 9%. I think we put about 9% then. Of course, it's shut it's up in the midst of the Moody's and the, and the, and the lockdowns to something like 13%, 13.3, 13, 13 I think it was, on the 10-year bond yield. I mean, that is... I mean, when you see where inflation is now, even at nine percent, we're talking about inflation. Now the Reserve Bank thinks inflation will average three point six percent. Some analysts are saying less. They're saying it's maybe breaching the lower end of the target. So if you're still getting a bond yield at ten percent, I mean that's still quite um, attractive. Good. Good I the worry though is, is, is like on the stocks market is what happens from here. And like I, I think Robin, I think I think as Julieta were on last week about whether you should you should be celebrating or. or or be worried about the fact that your pension is doing better than it will. <laughs> Rob, Rob what, what are you thinking this week? Should we be celebrating or worrying? Uh, definitely worrying. I mean, the stock market is totally crazy. I mean, there's no alternative. It's the Tina moment. There is no alternative. So that's why money's going there. But some of it looks a little, a little, a little crazy. And does it, I mean, and it, it makes the sort of what's happening in the real economy look even more difficult and, and sad. Um, uh, we're what almost two weeks now into level three rob how has the back to school back to work gone um are we getting the sort of upside that we might have hoped for i mean i think it was always going to be difficult it's it's the same as when you open when you lift a lockdown it doesn't mean your demand floods back it's the same as you know you you say that people are going back to work but a whole lot of people aren't going to go back to work um you know, the fact that we're still doing this interview on Zoom, this, this TV show on Zoom, illustrates that it isn't just, you know, you lift the, you press a button and suddenly it's all back to normal. So I think it's going to take a lot longer. And that's, that's the thing that, that government hasn't catered for, that they don't just press a button and it's back to normal. 
I actually want to throw in a question. We've got two minutes to go, but are you finding that the people that you're talking to when you do your stories are absolutely exhausted? That people are on Zoom and on Microsoft Teams and it's sort of back to back all day, every day, and they are in fact more tired than they used to be. Are you finding that, Rob? Absolutely. And I think, I think there's a degree of mental health issues as well. People sitting at home, it's, you know, it's created motivational issues, it's created depression issues. And if you're a guy who owns a business and see, see it's going bust or no business coming back in, I think there's a lot of widespread mental health issues that, that, you, you know, that are happening on the fringes that we're not really speaking about. Warren, the people you're talking to, how are you finding them? I mean, because you, you're talking to sort of executives every day who's sitting at home running their businesses from home. What's their experience of it? Yeah, no, it's it's very tough. I think we all kind of battle with the, the, the monotony um, because there's also been so much going on, uh, you know, at the upper echelons of, of business leadership with the government, uh, a lot of uh, discussing, a lot of planning, uh, a lot of responding. Like, for instance, when I spoke to the bank executives, um, they had put together this uh, this new 200 billion rand loan guarantee scheme uh, alongside the treasury in their spare time. I mean, they still had to run banks. They were still running banks during the day and putting together a 200 billion loan guarantee scheme at night. I mean, these guys, uh, I think it was Mike Brown told me, you know, the, the weekends had gone. And Warren, and, uh, some of them seem to be doing some domestic work as well. Talk about not only the double shift, uh, but the triple shift. Um, we've run out of time, unfortunately, but we'll meet again next week. Please join us again next week for another edition of Editing Aloud.